Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We hope it'll be a good one for you. Lots to talk about again today. We'll talk with the president of the National Association of Conservation Districts. Michael Crowder will join us, get his reaction to the new program, the premium being paid for those using cover crops. We'll talk about that. We have lots to talk about with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, the often controversial subject of land use when it comes to biofuels. We'll get the very latest on that and get his reaction to the administration's proposals in the budget for biofuels. And we'll talk weather with the director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub, Dennis Toddy, as we are into the month of June now and looking to start warming up in the places where it's been cool And just look at some other overall trends. A lot of places still dealing with frost damage. Uh, So a mixed bag as we look across the country with weather. And we'll talk about patterns with Dennis Toddy. Let's start it off with a look at the news. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report joins us. And I believe, Jerry, you are in North Dakota. Hot and dry there? Uh, Well, it hasn't been hot until it's supposed to be today, uh, about 90 today, and maybe even as high as 100 tomorrow. Uh, but they sure need rain here. It's uh, we need rain here. Uh, uh, the cro- the crops are some of the crops are coming up, but they're sparse compared to what they would normally be at this time of the year. Yeah, it's been a it's been a dry trend for quite some time for the Dakotas and uh, other parts of uh, the Upper Midwest, and uh, it looks like a challenging year ahead for sure. All right, Jerry, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, we've been talking about this. Uh, proposal for infrastructure are they going to get anything done anytime soon you think well i wouldn't be surprised if when congress comes back they push very hard on this uh uh, and they might get something done by the end of uh uh, by the end of uh, of july before congress goes out for its uh for its big uh its big break um i don't know whether they'll get anything done congress usually doesn't act until it has to uh so Mm -hmm. that that might be that at that point. Uh, uh, I may ask uh, the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan that today. Uh, I'm sta- sitting outside of Bismarck State College where Regan is going to be here as the uh, guest of Senator Kramer uh, and also Senator Hoven is going to be there. So that's what I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, looking forward to that and see what he may say on maybe some key areas that the EPA is responsible for, biofuels certainly being one of those areas. Uh, what else do you hope to press him on today or hope to hear from him on today? Well, he's going to do a roundtable with farmers, so I'm most of all interested in what the farmers ask him about. Uh, but I think it would be the RFS, what the, what the Biden administration will do on the Waters of the United States rule, uh, which mm-hmm. is, you know, that's been a contentious issue through every administration for several uh, several years now. Uh, and then uh, I'm also interested in when EPA is going to announce an ag- agriculture advisor. They haven't done that yet. Uh, that job is still open, and, 
and uh, I think everybody in agriculture should be interested in who that will be. And I think it'll be interesting to see, does he provide many details on those topics or others, or will it be more of kind of what we've heard, well, we're taking, getting, gathering as much information as we can uh, to help us make decisions, and we're still waiting on some of those decisions. So we'll, we'll see if he provides any details today. Well, that's right. We will see. And, of course, there is always a great emphasis on listening. Listen to the farmers. Listen to the ranchers, et cetera. Uh, so that may be the dynamic of the uh, of the meeting, uh, but also uh, these officials like to make news, so we might hope that there might be some kind of announcement today. Yeah, we'll be watching and see what comes from that. Uh, meanwhile, what is the reaction you're hearing to this uh, cyber attack on JBS? Well, the biggest reaction I've, I've heard is the questioning of whether it's, it's uh, wise to have these uh, meat com- uh, companies, con- uh, you know, the meat processing industry uh, controlled by so few people. The fact that, that, the, that JBS could be infiltrated and that it would affect plants in North America and Australia, and probably if they had wanted to focus on another part of the world, they could have done that, uh, the, the Russians or whoever it is that has gotten, uh, gotten into this. Now, whether that goes anywhere, I don't know. It's very hard to attack the structure of these of these meat companies. But that's the biggest reaction that I'm hearing. Also, that while JBS says that its plants are up and operating again, uh, there are reports that it, that that isn't completely true. That that there's some are operating, but others are not operating, and they're not operating at full speed. And bigger picture has to make make us all concerned i would think how vulnerable we seem to be in various aspects of our of our daily lives how vulnerable we are to these cyber attacks well exactly and and if they can do it in on the meat industry uh what about other types of of uh production could they uh, could they do the same thing for example with bakeries and the production of bread uh or the production of cereal or or uh, what about the distribution of, of uh, fruits and vegetables? Uh, all of these things are computerized these days, uh, and it really makes you wonder about, this, about all these supply chains. Yeah, maybe we can start getting more people to understand that food security is a part of national security. Yes, I would agree. I think that will make people understand that. The question is, what do you do about it? And that, that uh, you know, that's really the million-dollar question. Uh, uh, because when our food system works well, it is a model of efficiency. It's incredible how we get our food distributed around the United States and how plentiful it is and, and always available. Uh, but now we see the downside of the concentration um, and the... Um, uh, and, 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 how, and how it's organized. And the questions will come up, how much are some of these companies investing in program systems to protect themselves from those types of attacks? Well, yes. And, uh, you know, agriculture and food has always been a low-profit industry. That is that you make small amounts of money, tiny amounts of money, off the sale of each, of each item. And so the margins are often thin, and therefore people may not be investing in, in these uh, cyber protections like they should be. 
Yeah, and of course, part of the question right now in debate, especially in the cattle industry, is uh, who's making the profit and where's that money going, and who's not getting uh, very much of the share of that profit, and that's a big concern for cattle producers, certainly. So we'll see how all this plays out. Jerry, enjoy your time there in uh, North Dakota, and we look forward to your reporting on your visit uh, there with uh, Administrator Regan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Talk to you again. All right, soon. safe trip. Safe travels. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Up next, we'll talk with the president of the National Association of Conservation Districts about uh, a new premium to be paid by the acre for those using cover crops. We'll get more on that next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture from the National Milk Producers Federation, Shauna Morris, who heads up their trade team, this is good news that the action is being taken for a dispute panel challenge. The not good news, Canada has continued with policies that we hoped USMCA would uh, resolve when it comes to dairy. It's been a long time coming and one that dairy farmers and processors from all across the country have been really eager to see a move forward to actually enforce our rights under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. It is disappointing that we have to go through this dispute settlement process just to actually get the agreement terms that were so painstakingly negotiated for. Unfortunately, it's not a huge surprise. Canada on dairy has the longest track record of working to push the envelope and evade some of their commitments. What's most remarkable here is simply the U.S. desire to not tolerate that. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as part of USDA's Pandemic Assistance for Producers program, they are introducing... PCCP, the Pandemic Cover Crop Program, to allow producers to uh, ensure their spring crop and planted cover crops during the 2021 crop year to become eligible for a premium benefit, a premium payment of $5 per acre, but no more than the full premium owed. Let's talk about it with Michael Crowder, president of the National Association of Conservation Districts. Michael, thanks for joining us. What do you think of this uh, program uh, for cover crops? Do you like it? We do, yeah. Anytime that we can help producers uh, in their in their toolbox to get conservation in the ground, we like it. You know, this is money left over from the, um, the pandemic uh, funds and we're we're working with the usda rma and others to make sure that the conservation gets put on the ground so again it allows producers who insured their spring crop and planted cover crops during the 2021 crop year to become eligible for a premium benefit um you think that five dollars an acre is um going to be a a good incentive a good um benefit to those looking at using cover crops well, it's an incentive for early adopters, so we want to make sure that people are recognized that are are working on conservation programs on their farm. Mike, you know, it's it's really important that successful farmers, that their neighbors see that. You know, everybody's always looking over the fence. They're always looking over the ditch, ditch row, and, and if there is a successful program and we can make it more uh, financially stable for them, we're, we're all for that. You know, when I talk with farmers about cover crops, and I've talked to several just this week about this particular topic, uh, I find farmers either very gung-ho, all in on them, or some that are just hands-off saying, no, I, I don't see any way that I would do that. You have some in the middle that are kind of looking at it or think about trying a little bit. Uh, what do you hear when you talk with farmers about cover crops? Well, you can go anywhere from they love them to they hate them. In some areas that they don't like them, is because I live in eastern Washington. It's a very low rainfall. You're, there's just not enough moisture to, to get it to go in the winter. But for the vast majority of the country, cover crops are financially available. They, they're great for, for um, anchoring soil through the winter. They're great for carbon traps um, on climate-smart agriculture. They're really good at holding excess moisture, so they're a fantastic program. And, and USDA has 23, 23 uh, programs to, to put cover crops on the ground. I'm also hearing from farmers that have been using cover crops that there's a, a learning curve and uh, they they have learned some lessons and you know picking the right cover crop and management of it it, it does take a little bit of um, well it takes it takes a lot of management it takes getting used to uh, a different way of doing things there certainly is and there's a learning curve I, i've had a learning curve on, on my place where i didn't kill the cover crop right or whatever the issue 
but it's good for the soil and it's good for the bottom line. So as you build your soil, that's the most important thing that we as farmers have is our soil and the amount that it can produce so it can build up organic matter, um, it can build up soil moisture. So it, it is a fantastic program as long as it works with you with you and your program as a farmer. And we at the conservation districts are working with USDA and others to uh, make sure it's financially feasible to, to put this on the ground. And so this new program for uh, cover crop program, pandemic cover crop program, is a, a good thing for producers. You can learn a lot from those that have been the early adopters, right? Uh, they've gone through a lot of those trial and, trials and error, and, and you can learn from them. Certainly, and and you might not be successful the first year. Obviously, there's some severe challenges. Where where I'm at in the West, we're in a, a very severe drought. But if you go to the Southeast, they have too much water. So it there there's certainly challenges, and we need to learn from early adopters. We need to learn for our agronomists and our neighbors. So we're we're real happy that there's another tool in the toolbox for this. We're talking with Michael Crowder, president of the National Association of Conservation Districts. Michael, I assume you're very happy with the emphasis the administration is putting on conservation programs. We are. You know, we at NACD, so the National Association of Conservation Districts, we're working with USDA, uh, more with uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. We're working with leadership to try to figure out uh, what does climate smart ag mean? What does America the beautiful mean? How does that affect producers? And so we're just excited to see how the uh, the near future holds. So we're we're very much in favor of it and very much in favor of the view of conservation is important to uh, producers in the U.S. We've heard a lot about concepts and goals. We haven't heard a lot of details. Are you getting details on these things? We, at a level that would that we need to press forward, it's more of concepts right now. So we're preparing. We we know that there's there's a goal to have more technical assistance for producers. There's more financial assistance for producers, and we need to be ready as the conservation world that's helping those producers to get that technical and and financial assistance on the ground. So we we are not there to where we need on the specifics but we're preparing for that when they come out from the administration from the usda and of course there are the concerns about how to pay for it and some of the proposals with tax changes and things like that but that aside if you just look at what's being proposed for conservation you talked about the technical assistance and some of the incentives and things like this this is something that uh, has been needed for some time we know there's been a shortage of uh, funding for a lot of especially the workers to actually provide that technical assistance and to, to, there's been a desire by many landowners to do a lot of the conservation work but uh, they haven't been able to uh, get the help they've needed uh, whether through manpower or through uh, the financial uh, incentives and you're correct there, there has been a a fairly long standing issue with usda about filling positions and having enough boots on the ground. And that's where NACD comes in and helps the USDA is because we're, we're able to help them write these conservation plans for producers, and we're able to help help them get that technical assistance on the ground, and that, which turns into the financial assistance 
that the producers need to put to pick conservation on their farms and use equip and other practices on in the field what do you think of the goal of adding four million acres to crp is that feasible i think it is you, you have a trade-off of how much do producers get per acre and then the total number of acres so if, if there's money in the pot for that we are always in favor of of putting that in the ground because that's a voluntary program you know if you were retiring fields and it wasn't voluntary obviously we wouldn't be in favor of that but if the farmer signs up and is accepted by crp we're, we're in favor of that do you think there are we can add four million acres of highly erodible land, land that really needs to be in the program, or do you think to get to four million, you're going to be taking some good productive land out of out of uh, out of production? Well, it, it comes to su- supply and demand, and then and it's commodity prices. When the commodity prices are up, it's harder to fill acres on, on CRP. When the commodity prices fall, it's much easier. So if you take that curve, you'll you'll figure out if if you're competing with commodity prices, and and right now commodity prices are good. So we'll we'll wait to see how the final numbers come out this year on on CRP. But it's a wonderful program that that uh, FSA and, and NRCS use to uh, to help producers. Yeah, well, we'll see if they can uh, they attract those 4 million acres additional into the program or not. Michael, good to talk with you. And certainly, uh, I, it, just to be talking about conservation, more of an emphasis, more of a you know priority, it seems to be now. That I know that's encouraging to you. It, it is, and we're excited. You know, right now is a, is a time that as you're coming up through conservation world and building your farm and your practices and your herd, it's exciting to know that there'll be some more help or possibly be more help to get your goals and help help the uh, the environment at the same time. Yep, we'll see how this all plays out. Good to talk with you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Michael Crowder, president of the National Association of Conservation Districts. Yeah, that's a lot of emphasis right now. We'll see if how it all plays out. Some big biofuels uh, news to talk about next with Jeff Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at dtnpf.com bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. 
Visit DTNPF.com today. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. The hot and dry weather forecast for U.S. growers finally caught the market's attention. Minneapolis wheat proved to be the gem of crop traders yesterday and is higher this morning. Row crops are trading mixed to mostly lower. July corn trading seven and a half cent lower at 667 and three quarters. The September contract seven cents lower at 586. For soybeans, the July contract a penny and a half cent lower at 1561 and a fraction. The August contract down two and a half cent at 15 13 and three quarters for wheat chicago wheat july down eight and three quarters at 678 and three quarters kansas city wheat july down seven and three quarters at 626 minneapolis spring wheat july down a fraction at 782 and three quarters the september contract a penny and a fraction higher at 789 and a half cent the news of jbs being back online had traders buying futures aggressively the crisis was averted and consumers were buying beef box beef prices went through the roof with choice up $5.60 and select up $5.43. The expectation is that overall supplies might be tighter for the period of time as slaughter levels will take some time to get back to full speeds again. As expected, packers are not aggressive in the cash market with some trading activity Wednesday in the south at $120, which is about steady to a dollar higher than last week and steady at $191 in the north. June live cattle on the Board of Trade up five cents at 117.17. The August contract down a dime at 119.15. For feeders, the August contract trading 15 cents higher at 152.47. September up 20 cents at 155 even. For lean hogs, the July contract down 60 cents at 117.87. The June contract down 32 cents at 117.92. In the outside markets, the Dow is down 109 points. The Nasdaq composite down 146. The S&P 500 down 24. The U.S. dollar index is trending higher. This is AOA. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm-mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. For years now, there has been this big debate and in some quarters controversy over land use when it comes to biofuels production. Has an increase in biofuels production caused us to put more land in production and and cause environmental concerns? And there have been uh, different studies done on this, competing studies. going to get the latest on this now from Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, good to talk with you. As I said, this debate's been going on for years. What's the latest? 
Well, Mike, you're exactly right. And, and like Yogi Berra used to say, it does feel like a deja vu all over again. We are seeing a lot of activity from some of the anti-ethanol environmental groups, uh, some academics on this issue of land use change again. Uh, it's an issue that kind of first popped up 10 or 12 years ago, uh, kind of went quiet for a few years, and, and now it's back again. And they're arguing that growth in ethanol and biodiesel production has caused cropland expansion over the past decade. And, and we know that's just wrong. We, we show them USDA data. We show them data from the EPA uh, that shows overall cropland continues to shrink in the U.S., uh, and, and in fact, the last few years, farmers have planted about 10 or 15 million acres less to principal crops than they did in, in 2007 when the RFS2 was adopted. So, so yes, we, we, you know, we have seen higher corn and soybean acres over the past 20 years, but those acres are not coming from grassland or forest or wetlands or any other native landscapes. They're coming from crop switching, and USDA's data on that is irrefutable, but we still have new papers and, and new claims coming out uh, that, that are now relying on this satellite imagery uh, to argue that uh, biofuels are causing cropland expansion um, and, and therefore, but, you know, the, the carbon benefits of biofuels are grossly overstated is, is what these folks are arguing. I mean, to me, this, it, it's kind of clear cut, isn't it? I mean, it's, you can pretty well peg how many acres are out there, right, are being used for production. Uh, uh, these critics make it sound like we're ripping out subdivisions just to plant corn to make ethanol. Yeah, you, you absolutely can uh, every single year, as, as, as you guys know. I mean, USDA uh, records in, in great detail uh, what acres were planted to what crops. And, and, you know, so that, that data is publicly available. It's, it's out there for anybody to see. It's down to the county level. Um, so it, it's there, but, but these guys continue to argue. For, for, they pretend that's not real. And, and so now what they're doing is they're claiming that USDA's satellite imagery uh, is, is showing land use change. And so what they're doing is they're trying to compare images uh, from, say, 2008 or 2010 to images of the same parcel of land in 2016 or 2018, and they're saying, look here, these images prove that some, that this land transitioned from grassland to cropland uh, during that period. But, but here's the problem with that satellite imagery. Those satellites uh, cannot distinguish between certain land types, and, and especially between grassland and cropland. USDA has admitted that about 60% of the time, those images are, are misclassifying uh, the, the land cover type. So, so the stuff is completely unreliable for, for using it to, to do this kind of land use change analysis. And so there's a group of, of geospatial satellite experts at Southern Illinois University over here at Edwardsville that just this week put out a paper and said, hey, this, this satellite imagery stuff is not useful um, and, and has so much uncertainty and error with it that, with, that these, you know, allegations and, and results from these other guys just can't be trusted. I just find it ironic, too, at a time when, I mean, you look around, I mentioned tearing out subdivisions. We see just the opposite. Subdivisions are being built where cropland once was, right? I mean, it, it seems like it should be a bigger concern about losing acres of production rather than having too many. That's absolutely right, Mike, and that's been the other uh, irony in this in this whole debate over the last ten or fifteen years. Is, is first they argued that 
you know, biofuels are going to cause cropland expansion, and, and we're going to see forests cut down. We're going to see wetlands converted over to cropland. Once we proved that that was wrong, now they're saying, well, the problem with biofuels is that, that it's keeping, uh, you know, land in production. It's, it's keeping cropland uh, from reverting back to natural ecosystems. Um, and, and so that's the argument that, that we're facing now. But, but you're absolutely right. If you want to look at what the real sources of land use change have been in the past 10 or 15 years, it is not cropland expansion. It certainly isn't anything to do with biofuels. It's uh, suburbanization and just, you know, you look at any major city in the, in the Midwest, whether it's Des Moines or Minneapolis or Chicago, and look at the sprawl that is moving out of those cities, it is displacing good productive cropland uh, in those areas. So if, if there's a villain in, in this whole land use thing, uh, it's, it's that spread of urban development. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Okay, here's been another ongoing debate, and that is the uh, life, life cycle greenhouse gas analysis uh, when it comes to, to biofuels. What's the latest there? Yeah, and this is all this is all related because uh, you know the, the the some of the environmental groups are claiming that that uh, when there is cropland expansion, uh, that results in carbon emissions from you know cultivating that land that was storing carbon before, and so those emissions need to be added to the overall carbon footprint of of, of corn ethanol. Um, so what we've seen from the Department of Energy, uh, from Harvard University recently. Uh, from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and, and several others, they've looked at this whole life cycle uh, from the time the seed is planted in the ground until the time the ethanol is, is consumed in a vehicle. Um, and what they have found is even with any hypothetical land use changes, uh, ethanol offers about a 50% greenhouse gas reduction compared to gasoline. So in other words, using ethanol in lieu of gasoline cuts the greenhouse gas emissions by half uh, for a typical vehicle. So uh, that's a substantial finding, and it's very important at a time like this when the administration and Congress are very much focused on what can we do to reduce emissions from the transportation sector. Yeah, critical time, and it's fuel sources, energy sources, basically are now have more than ever having to show their environmental benefits, right, to right. qualify yep. as the fuel that will be used to reach these climate goals that are being set. That, that's absolutely right, and, and that's why we're advocating for when you do those comparisons of different fuels and their, and their greenhouse gas emissions impacts, you got to be fair and you have to use consistent metrics and, and consistent boundaries for that analysis. You know, one thing that drives us crazy is when we hear people call electric vehicles zero emissions vehicles because they say, they're, well, there's no emissions, there's no tailpipe. So there's no emissions from the tailpipe on an electric vehicle. And it's like, well, yeah, but what about uh, the upstream emissions associated with generating the electricity that is powering that electric vehicle? And if that electricity comes from fossil fuels and coal in particular, then that electric vehicle is certainly no better for emissions than than a, a flex fuel vehicle running on e85 or, or, or other higher ethanol blends so as you try to prove that you, your fuel belongs in the, the equation to meet these climate goals what what do you think of what's your reaction to what you're seeing from the administration in its proposals budget proposals for biofuels 
Well, that's the yes, that's right. The the president put out his his budget request uh, last Friday before the holiday weekend. Uh, we did go through it, and and as expected, there is a lot in there. When you tally everything up, it's something like 170 billion dollars uh, aimed toward electrification and and stimulating and incentivizing electric vehicles. Now there is a little bit in there for for biofuels. There's you know roughly 14, 15 billion dollars. Um, but by comparison, you know it's it's clear that this administration is putting its eggs in the the electric vehicle basket, and so that's that's a bit frustrating. And we look at some of the budget proposals coming from the agencies, whether it's USDA or DOE or, or others, uh, and they are similarly focused on electrification. And, and our message to the administration has been, look, if the goal is reducing emissions, uh, we should be fairly encouraging uh, any technology that can reduce emissions from the transportation sector. And, and the best technology in the near term to do that is, is biofuels and using more ethanol would help achieve those goals in, in, in the next five to 10 years. Certainly, uh, you know, we're not expecting to see the entire fleet of 280 million light duty vehicles uh, flip over to electric vehicles anytime soon. So let's use more low carbon liquid fuels like ethanol uh, to reduce the carbon impacts of our transportation sector. Real quick, Jeff, that pandemic aid money that was put at the discretion of USDA, and we thought this last time it was going to, some of it was going to be going to the ethanol industry, the biofuels industry. Have has the industry yeah. received any of that? Yeah, it's it's funny you should ask that, Mike. It's it's almost like people have, have forgotten about that, but and it has. It's been several months now since Secretary Vilsack said that biofuel producers would be included in this latest round of, of COVID aid. Uh, they've got $6 billion set aside to provide more COVID relief. Uh, we haven't heard a word from, from USDA mm. since then, um, other than, you know, they tell us, hey, you know, we haven't forgotten about you. Yes, ethanol producers will still be included when we figure out how to distribute this. Um, but we are anxiously awaiting details on that because we've still got a lot of pain and suffering in the industry. All right. Jeff, thanks for the update. Always good to talk with you, and uh, let's hope we can get our Cardinals straightened out, too. Uh, yes, sir. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Take, take care. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. All right. Well, let's take a look at summer weather trends next with Dennis Toddy, Director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Stay with us. This is AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, a recent federal district court ruling struck down a provision of USDA's new swine inspection system. Here to talk about it is Andrew Bailey, National Pork Producers Council's Science and Technology Legal Counsel. Why could this have such a negative impact on pork producers? But what that rule did was finalize a pilot program that had been operating in five plants for well over 20 years. And those plants have been operating differently and at these higher line speeds, uh, significantly above some than the 1,106 head per hour limit. This decision in late March has essentially said that by July, they're going to have to drop down that lower line speed point. And it's going to be about a 2.5% cut to harvest capacity across the U.S. But for each of these six plants that were operating above the line speed, it's actually going to be a 20 to 30% hit. These plants, you know, most of them are, are not in Iowa. So you're looking at, you know, states like Oklahoma or Michigan taking a significant hit. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture, agriculture. conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. 
Want to reduce your risk of developing cancer? A healthy diet can help. This is registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. It's been proven that a healthy lifestyle and early detection can prevent nearly half of all cancer deaths. So eat right. Choose a variety of proteins each week. Seafood, lean meat, poultry, beans, and nuts. Fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables every meal. Look for foods low in calories, fat, and sodium. And maintain a healthy weight. A registered dietitian nutritionist can help. Find one at eatright.org. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk weather patterns with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, is this the week or maybe this upcoming weekend where we really start kind of feeling more like summer over a bigger part of the Midwest? Uh, we definitely are. You know, we've had pieces of it before, but that's typical of the spring. Um, but we are in what we call climatological summer now, as opposed to astronomical summer, which starts you know, in June or June 20th, 21st, the warmest 90 days of the year, if you look at it, are are June 1 to the end of August. And we have a ridge of high pressure that is building into the eastern U.S. and north-central U.S. uh, and well into next week that's going to bring some some very warm temperatures uh, well into the 90s. Looks like we may touch 100 in parts of the northern plains. Um, And that's not necessarily great news right now for some of the crops uh, that are in the ground right now. Yeah, some areas will welcome that heat. Other areas, it, it's going to make bad situations worse. When I think of the Dakotas and some of those areas that have been so dry, now you're going to add heat to that as well. It's going to make it really tough. Right. Uh, you know, we, we have been, you know, I've been watching degree day accumulations, and they aren't too bad. Uh, you know, we've had these cool periods that have slowed phenological progress down just a little bit. So some additional heat is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, some, so some temperatures up into the low 90s would not, you know, is not a problem at this time of year. But when you're going well into the 90s on top of really dry soils, um, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a death knell for, 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 you know, for row crops. Um, because it's still pretty early in the season. But they've had, you know, some of these places have had several problems on top of each other, some dryness, some freeze, and now some heat. So uh, I, we could have some, some problems. In, and I was looking at the crop, at the, you know, crop condition reports up in uh, the Dakotas particularly, and corn and beans are a little, or at least corn right now, is looking a little rougher up there than most of the other places. So that is going to be a problem. you got rangeland issues and then some small grains up there uh, may not be the best for the small grains either. I've been talking with some Iowa farmers this week, uh, still trying to assess freeze damage. Uh, correct. Uh, a, a bit unexpected uh, and, and actually kind of odd because in places like Iowa, uh, there were only a couple spots that actually went below freezing. Uh, there was a spot uh, in Elkader in northeast Iowa, another couple spots that, that are lower areas where we went below freezing. Uh, but we did uh, get some damage to some crops because of, of temperatures that went down near freezing. Now, while that may sound odd, 
it's it's not impossible for that to happen because uh, the thing you have to remember is is we had you know drier air and clear skies, great conditions for radiative cooling at night, and and much like you can get frost on your windshield. Uh, without going below freezing, the same thing can happen to a crop is because it's open to the sky, the temperature on that leaf that's emitting, you know, giving off heat, it can reach that freezing temperature, especially when they're when they're young like this and a little bit more susceptible. Uh, so we have, you know, there's been mixed mixed damages. I'm sure you heard people talk about some have replanted. Some other people have talked about replanting parts uh, of fields and things like that. Uh, so, you know, we've had multiple impacts of, of various things and multiple freeze events, too, this, this spring that showed up again and again. So what is the dominant weather pattern that you see developing for this summer? Oh, boy. If I had the answer for that one, <laughs> I could go make a lot of money somewhere. Uh, no, um, right now, you know, we don't have an El Nino or La Nina. So that kind of opens things up to a lot of different possibilities right now. Um, you know, the, the things that we, we still have some concern about drought issues looking into the summer, probably more in the Plains area uh, because the, the current conditions are worse there and there are some slightly increased chances for warmer and drier. As you get over into the, the upper Midwest, uh, there's some concern, but there's better chances for being able to resolve the issues over there, and the outlooks aren't as uh, don't lead toward the the wet and or the warm and dry side quite as much as out in the plains. Uh, right now, this you know this next warm period coming up looks like it's going to last uh, maybe a couple weeks, but then doesn't look like it's going to persist too long just yet. That's a good thing. Because uh, I had some concern that we start locking this in and start causing problems. Doesn't mean it can't come back again later, but at least this early one doesn't look like it's going to last too long a period of time. So we should get back to some cooler temperatures and and probably some some, uh, some more chances of precipitation. Unfortunately, the rains that did come through did not knock back drought as much as we had hoped. We still got you know there's been a little bit of alleviation on drought in some of the places. Uh, but not big, considering how much rainfall we had. We just there wasn't enough to cut into the deficits, and some of those places in the southern Corn Belt were that were more the beneficiaries of some of the bigger rainfall events. Yeah, so we're starting to we'll start kind of watching those timing periods for those temperatures when it comes to pollination time. So that'll be key uh, for those very dry areas. Pretty hard to make up, um, hard to come out of a drought or recover from a drought. Uh, during the summer, right? That <laughs> that's asking a lot. That's so. It looks like it could be a long, tough year for those folks. The the northern plains, particularly, you know, we're reaching a point up there where chances for precipitation start to fall off climatologically. Mm -hmm. So it, it's more of a struggle for them. You know, those places from southeast South Dakota and areas that are in a drought over to Michigan. Uh, climatologically, June is usually more of the, the is the wetter period. So we have some chances to improve early season drought that's not terribly severe, um, you know, can be beneficial. We're, we know we're going to be pushing roots deeper than other times. We've not had some compaction issues. We've had some other years. So if we get even periodic rains, can still help us move along and be okay. All right, Dennis, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll check in with you and your crystal ball again soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. 
Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. That wraps it up for today. Hope you have a great day, a safe one. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.